Hello and welcome to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. I'm Kelly McKercher. I'm a designer, a writer, and I use them, they pronouns. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which I'm recording this podcast, the Wongal and Gadigal people of the Ori Nation, as well as all nations across Australia. This series aims to stretch our view of human-centered design through talking with practitioners who are working beyond the double diamond, who are pushing practice. On today's podcast, I'm joined by the exceptional Sloan Leo. Sloan is many things, a designer, a community organizer, an educator, a friend, and owner of Flock Studios. In today's conversation, we talk about equity-centered design, about the inspiration that Sloan has taken from Bell Hook's work, how Sloan came to design from frustration, and what they are thinking about now. Welcome, Sloan, to the podcast. Can you start by telling us your pronouns and the land you're located on? Hi, my name is Sloan Leo. My pronouns are they, he, and I am on Lenape land. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about your design practice and your positionality as a designer. Oh, such a fun question to start with. So I come to design by way of frustration, less by way of formal design education. There's a wonderful essay by Bell Hooks called Theory as Liberatory Practice. And I would say that my practice comes from that place. And in the opening of that essay, Bell Hooks basically says, I came to theory because I felt angry, because I felt disoriented and frustrated. I came to theory because it gave me a home to believe that the ideas in my head mattered as ideas alone. And I think that that's the the same way that I look at design. So I'm in the field of community design, which contains everything from participatory design, liberatory design, equity-centered design, community-centered design. And it's all of my practice and all of those practices are about how do groups of people organize themselves and establish what shared goals and approaches are going to make the most sense. So Mm. it's really, my practice is about moving from the old design adage of designing for past the current adage of designing with into the new landscape of design by Mm. oh I love it (laughs) I wonder if you could maybe paint a bit of a picture or tell a story about what design by is and sort of feels like and can evolve yeah you know I think it's good to give that example but I want to also give a comparison so you know when we look at let's look at the pandemic right and New York City went into lockdown on March 20th 2020 And the big thing at the time was, how are we going to get food to people who are hungry and can't afford Seamless or Grubhub? And in a traditional design approach, you would look and say, well, what is the persona of someone who needs food? And then you would say, okay, well, um, I see I've learned all this about them. That took me a month. These people have been hungry for a whole month. Just note that. And there's community all around them who have food but this design firm has been hired by a nonprofit to figure out how to get food to the people. And so over six months, they figure out how much it will cost, what the persona is, what the best way to get the food there is from their point of view. And then people have been hungry for a year. Whereas what happens in the community 
that is not rooted in traditional design, is rooted in like what communities need to do for each other. What comes out of that are interventions like the Corona Couriers, which is one of the first kind of mutual aid groups that I heard of during the pandemic and lockdown. And it was a group of bike messengers and bike enthusiasts who said, we can deliver food to people. We will find out who has food. We will find out who needs the food and we will bring the food to the people. And that's it. And so there is a simplicity and an organicness and an authenticity and an abundance that is possible within Mm -hmm. community design because it's not rooted and relegated to a system that is rooted in capitalism. Community design is is inherently anti-capitalist in its nature, but it doesn't mean that money is bad. It means that the pursuit of money alone as a way to organize a group of people turns people into widgets and not people into people who are serving other people. Mm. And it's, I mean, that's such a good and a stark example of the contrast between who's waiting and who needs support and that sort of what could be a really drawn out design process. It was right. sort of, and I, I, I feel like community design has a better connection to like authentic urgency. And mm. I say authentic urgency very specifically because I spent predominantly a huge part of my career, you know, 15 years of work and eight years being a fundraiser where you manufacture urgency. It's like, oh, well, we have a gala, so you should come give this money now, or it's the end of the tax year, you should give money now, or, you know, they roll out this huge campaign about the urgency of now, when in community design at its, like, essence, when it's done in the most natural expression, the urgency is about who's harmed, who's been harmed, and what do they need right now, Mm, period. mm. And I know on your website you talk a lot about this idea of working from abstraction to connection and it strikes me that some of the design processes we're speaking about are quite abstracted and it feels like the people mm-hmm. leading those processes are just super far away from from those people you're speaking about yeah it's funny it's, you know I was talking to someone today one of our clients is a large nonprofit that does really interesting work to shift narratives um, at the national level like how do we talk about undocumented persons in a way that actually creates policy change cool stuff right So this board member, really smart, very thoughtful, and we were talking about this idea of a lab. And in the design and air quotes innovation space, there's a lot of this kind of like, oh, we're a design lab, we're a laboratory for experiments. Mm -hmm. And he said something that really stuck with me today, which was like, if you picture a lab, you picture someone who's already at a distance. Because the lab structure is like, I am in my gloves, I am in my white jacket, you are being extracted from, experimented upon, or explored, but it's actually not about being in a peer relationship. And so I think that a lot of our language really comes from a desire to abstract, to make people comfortable, which really is about serving capitalism, because community design requires an understanding that discomfort is part of how change happens. And so it's not to say like, because we talk about efficiency a lot, you know, in like traditional designs, like what's gonna be most efficient? And we, efficiency is about least time, therefore least money. Where the efficiency in community design is actually trust. That's how things move faster, mm-hmm. is because we trust each other, because we know we're invested in each other. And that feels really important as a distinction also. Mm. And we've talked to a few folks on the podcast so far that are working in this space of, I would almost name it a sort of community accountable form of designing Mm -hmm. as opposed to Mm -hmm. a form of designing that's primarily accountable to, you know, a client, a shareholder, Mm -hmm. a desire to sell more. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I wonder, you know, from your perspective, what does that mean to sort of have community accountability or to shift accountability into a community setting? Yeah, you know, I feel like there's some good examples of this in philanthropy right now. One of the projects the studio has taken on at Flux over the last year has been a project called the Brooklyn Economic Justice Project, right? So a women's foundation, the New York Women's Foundation came to us and said, we've got these amazing grantees all over Brooklyn who are fighting and advocating and accelerating economic liberation and justice. And they need to figure out like, what is the project that is possible with them all together that is impossible for one of them to do on their own. Mm. They come to the conclusion that they're gonna move about $40,000 in grants of 500 to 5,000 to community members who are able to advance economic ownership, which may look like owning a community garden. It may look like uh, the local barbershop owner being able to offer barbershop entrepreneurship classes. It may look like something I can't even describe because it comes from community and it's such a personal story that I can't even give a hypothetical, right? And in those circumstances, as we're looking at accountability, their accountability is not to the funder. Like they do what they have to do and they're you know intentional, but their accountability is to like the woman who runs the local like community fridge. Their accountability is to the kid who wants to play someplace that's green. Their accountability is to their grandmother who wants to be able to walk down the sidewalk and feel safe and included in the neighborhood planning, you know? Mm. So I think that the accountability issue really is about who's even asking about accountability, right? Mm. There is like, when I went to therapy, I'd I'd be like, well, you know, they said this and they said that. And my therapist would say, well, who are they? And you're like, oh, So I think even as we're talking about ideas of accountability, it's like, well, who's demanding accountability? Mm. Because a lot of it comes in philanthropy from the funder, who's like, well, I have to tell my board what we're doing with the money, Mm. um, as opposed to just making sure we follow through on the impact. Mm. And I was thinking about it sort of from the perspective of here in Australia and also in New Zealand, there's a bit of a culture of sort of fly in, fly out designing Uh Mm -hmm. and sort of designers that are dropped into a particular community in which they share no no concern no identity no real Mm -hmm. sense of life in that particular place and Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm hearing as you're talking is that we should be very kind of skeptical about that fly in fly out tendency and Mm -hmm. you know I wonder how how you would think about that is is that a thing that happens in in your context yeah, there definitely is like, and it's a, it's, a, it's an interesting evolution, right? So we want to think, if we, we try to understand like how design is changing as if like there's a very discrete before and after where I think right now we're in an interstitial zone mm-hmm. where an interstitial zone is kind of like the place where the sand meets the ocean. So there's this kind of like moments of clarity, moments of convergence, but there's also like the kind of divergence and like we're in that space And I mentioned that because I feel like this idea of kind of dropping in and dropping out is endemic to capitalism because it's about disposability and it's about like the disposability of a relationship um, Mm. and the prioritization of capital rather than humans. Mm. And I think that we are moving in this interstitial zone. I'm hoping we're evolving to a place where the desire is not to win the next contract only or to have the showiest portfolio, 
but to actually look around and say, hey, as much as we have been funding nonprofits in the U.S. for the last 103 years, since 1917, and there are now 1.8 million nonprofits in the U.S., they still are being supported by ideals of capitalist organizing, which are still about transactions. So if we're talking about building capacity, it's about essentially building your business out of your business. Mm. Like I want nonprofit employees to not feel such dissonance between their value system and the way they experience work. That's a problem for the field. And to move to that kind of space, we have to look at not drop in, drop out, but like, how do you actually maintain and how do we incentivize the maintenance of relationships Mm. and maintenance in general? Mm. And I was thinking about that, that, metaphor you just used mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. the sand the ocean and that mm-hmm. in between interstitial zone mm-hmm. and just to keep using that metaphor I wonder let's assume the ocean is kind of what's yeah. coming yeah, um, yeah. It, which and, is like true in so many ways <laughs> exactly um and I wonder you know what you're seeing out on the horizon mm-hmm. or what sort of waves um and, and how you would name those so Ah, That's a fun fun question. Let me think about this. So I think there are kind of like zones of the ocean coming in. There is a zone of what in like the Atlantic and kind of like liberal elite papers, which I do read, um, are talking about like the great quit and how so many Americans are like, I don't want to work for poor wages for a mean boss. I'm not doing this anymore. And starting their own businesses, right? There's been more businesses starting the pandemic. There's been more conversations about labor and collective action in labor unions. There's a huge groundswell of nonprofit labor unions forming in the U.S. Um, And there's this desire for, it's not even, people call it like, oh, workers want to be autonomous. Workers don't want to be abused. It's not that they want to be autonomous. If If work still delivered care, and like you could have a middle class job, a house, a family, and a retirement plan. People wouldn't hate work so much, but work doesn't care about you. And that's changed over the last generation. You know, so I think that in the future, what we're going to see is more autonomous crews. If we look at the idea of like micro solidarity. Yes. So people who are freelancers saying, oh, let's work together as a collective. Like my bar down the street, Rebecca's bar, cool bar in my neighborhood, collectively owned by a bunch of bartenders. Right. And that works. And the research and PhD programs are saying that too. So I think one shift is around worker mobilization and organizing. I think the second thing that we're seeing is a desire to not be so stark in the idea of best practices, be it in design or another field. But if we look at like business or nonprofit best practices just in the last 15 years, I'm sorry, but like if we go to the year 2000, and look at the assumptions that were baked into the how these institutions worked then. And then we look at now with the freezing of Texas, the fires in the West, the coup attempt in the U.S. Like our assumptions, the landscape is so different that it demands us to actually really operate differently as institutions. So I think there's a wave in here about moving beyond like redefining best practices to a new normal Mm. and that new normal is not static 
It is dynamic and emergent. And that's a really, I think that's like the third thing is like, there's actually quite a significant paradigm shift about what does it mean to solve for good? For most of my career, people could be focused on purpose or good in this kind of agnostic way. But now, particularly in the U.S. with the factions that we have politically and economically, we are we need to move to a place where there's room for nuance and room for non-binariness, right? Like it's not just a gender identity, it's an orientation to the world that acknowledges things are not as simple as like make money, don't make money, do good, don't do good. Mm-hmm. And it feels like also a little bit of a time where we're reckoning with this idea that design can be a neat toolkit that mm-hmm. sort of people just pick up and start applying these methods with, you know, really very little critique about where they come from and who they ask to conform and perform. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wonder what you'd say about that, this kind of breaking down of the design as a toolkit <laughs> sort of mindset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that from my point of view, there's there's a, a an important kind of destabilizing energy that we're navigating right now, where this like, we're we're in a deconstruction moment in a lot of ways, and in most fields around our identities, around how we live together as a species and as a countries, and I feel like design much like hackathons has had this moment of like, oh, we'll do a design sprint and that'll fix the end, that'll solve it. And it mm-hmm. did progress the, the idea of how we work together, right? Like creative risk-taking, valuable. It's not that human-centered design wasn't a good idea. It's that it has, it's an idea that perhaps has reached its zenith. And now we do need to look beyond and say, what did it not deliver? And what it did not deliver was actually like a mainstream sense of why design could be a tool set and what else matters you know designers are vulnerable to issues of hubris and ego like anybody else and the way Mm -hmm. things become popular and mainstream is because someone with a big ego starts talking real loud and it works and now we're looking at design i think from a more populist standpoint to say what do we need from design as opposed to how can design fix everything Mm. and i know that one of the hats you wear is teaching and teaching students Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I wonder what are you talking to your students about at the moment um you know it's funny you ask that so we did a program with the school of visual arts design for social innovation program in August called community design for leaders and I thought it was going to be a class it was marketed as for design curious social sector leaders but what it actually is is a class for social curious design leaders and so we've taken that learning into a full semester course that we've built for the school of visual arts design for social innovation program and the main change in the curriculum is that it's less about like we do talk about what kind of what facilitation differences exist between traditional human-centered design and community design right we do talk about process and tools but we've added in like 30 percent more content that is political education because that's one of the big differences is that human-centered design and all of its benefits are still quite values agnostic. They still kind of stay out of politics. And I don't believe you can stay out of politics unless you have the privilege of being a political, which is still a political position and a political identity. So I feel like where we are now is like, how do we reinsert in our class 
a political identity and a political realism and help students to say, what is the Kambahi River Collective? What is Audre Lorde? What is Bell Hooks? What does justice have to do with design? And that's the question that students in every program should be asking themselves right now is, how is what I'm doing in school going to add advance justice, period? Mm. And I mean, we've seen some, I guess, some progress even here in the reach of the Design Justice Network and in the reach mm-hmm. of some of those principles and ways of working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I wonder from your perspective how you would begin to explain the relationship between design and justice and, and what's possible. Yeah, you know, it's when we were starting the summer course, we asked the question, like, what is the point of design? Like, just very just to start there like what's the point of this and when we kind of drilled down a bit more into what do we see as the utility the utility or functionality of community-centered design or community design is relocating power and decision making design is all about power and it is all about who is holding the pen or the architecture blueprint or the workshop planning and if you have that privilege, your job should be to figure out how to not have so much privilege. So we see it as, again, as a deconstructionist approach to design, but it's about using design to li- create more liberated spaces where there is mm-hmm. shared ownership, shared investment, and shared accountability, you know, and you're invested in each other and therefore you are accountable to each other because it's more mm-hmm. relational, you know? Mm. And I wonder too if there's sort of an emerging critique and awareness too of, you know, simply adding new, better, different or more services is perhaps not the thing. <laughs> and actually, We don't need more things. <laughs> no. I mean, there's, there's so many. And it seems like, you know, as human-centered designers or as service designers, we've just become so complicit in mm-hmm. reproducing more and more of the things And in some ways that's probably, uh, you know, led us away from a more relational, conversational and even reciprocal type of design. Mm -hmm. I think that word reciprocity is so interesting and so like poignant right now because it's like in a barter economy, there's reciprocity in our relationships. Like you don't like we're friends, right? We're friends and colleagues. I'm on your podcast because we have, we are in community together and we care about advancing the field, not because I'm like, well, after this, you're going to owe me one. It's like, we are getting shared mutual value in this actual moment. It's not like later down the line, we're going to get new value independently. It's like right now, this is valuable. Um, And I think that the ideas of reciprocity are, are, are also rooted in sharing and care. And so I've been thinking a lot about what does care mean in this moment and how do we let that be part of what leads us without being woo, you know, like I know people who maybe are less open to ideas of care and design because it feels like unsubstantial, not rigorous or whatever. It, it's, it's not true. You know, I know we'll talk a bit, I, I hope about what, what is it that, like, what are the myths of community is something I've been thinking a lot about and I'm mm. hoping we can spend some time talking about that also. Yes. Yes, please. I mean, for me, I guess the language of community or communities is kind of thrown around and yep. you sort of see 
just about everything at the moment being badged or labeled as uh-huh. you know community this and community that community manager I mean, community uh, whatever yeah yeah community insert word here uh-huh. um i mean maybe let's even just start there i mean what what is community yeah community is a group of people who have a shared resource that they are trying to navigate together because community exists at many scales, right? So that shared resource may be a set of political representatives because you have a shared geography. It may be that you have a shared mission statement because you all work together at the same organization. Community may be that you have a shared interest in birds. And so it's like, what is it that you share and how do you share it equitably, fairly, and ideally with some like delight and joy because like, one of the things we have to resist right now is the re- we have to resist hopelessness right now. There's a beautiful article that I read. I think it was the New York Times or the Atlantic that said um, this idea of tragic optimism and how do you find joy and meaning in an end an end of times kind of moment. And I feel like that is an act of resistance right now is holding space for that joy and and for laughter mm. and for light too. Because mm. mm. I think like. I- Going back to your original question, I just want to go back to that to say, like, I think that there's a diff. I think that there's this assumption that community equals less rigorous, less good. Mm-hmm. I think it sounds like compromise to a lot of people. Like, oh well, it's a community event, so it probably won't be that good, or yeah. it's a community decision, so there's no data involved. Yeah, and I think we're seeing some really powerful. Uh, stories and arguments against that and one of the other episodes in this podcast we speak to Ewan Black and Lauren Anseline about a program called Our Town which is a completely divested community-based working around mental health they've got 10 years of philanthropic funding to build up community capacity and community stories and relationships and, and responses and I think we're sort of starting to see more and more power of that and therefore what other types of roles can be played to support or act in solidarity to or provide a funding to whatever um but as you say I think there's also a nervousness that comes about when we start talking about things like community-led design and that nervousness seems to come both from designers themselves and sort of saying you know but what do you want me to do (laughs) and are you suggesting I don't do all the things I'm really good at doing and the nervousness, mm-hmm. of course, also coming from others that, you know, don't necessarily see community as having expertise in their own mm-hmm. lives in the types of responses that can be, you know, highly effective. Um, and I wonder in that kind of myths territory, you know, what are some of those myths that, that are recurring unhelpfully? I think the biggest one is that, like, community know-how is somehow subpar to professional expertise. I think about this a lot as an, like uh, as something that we can learn from the history of nonprofit professionalization. So if you go back to 1917 and the charities law that created the nonprofit sector in the US, it was really done as a service to wealth holders to create a tax status that benefited them, right? Incentivize them and Yes, you're a robber baron. You're an oil magnet. Give some money away. It'll be good for the country. It was like this kind of service thing. But then 
it happened at a time where it was like the doing goodness and this is complicated in its own ways politically, but it was like churches were doing good for people who were hungry. <laughs> they were taking care of their community, like their local parish. Right. Mm. And then over time, as the field has professionalized, you go to school, you get more learned, you learn about theories of change and all these methodologies and it gets more bureaucratic and it becomes an institutional question as opposed to a, how do I help the people in my community question? So as we've gotten farther away from a like labor-based economy and moved into a knowledge-based economy, I think that that distance is a similar issue we're running into with design, is that if we only understand design as a professional expertise that requires a $100,000 investment to go to design school, then you've, you're really ignoring the fact that it is racialized capitalism that actually gets in the way, uh, that's what professionalism is, right? It is a way of saying, it's a way of adding control to how people engage with each other. And I think that if we are to resist that, which is the goal, we get back to a place that is much more humane. And Mm. I want to just give a caveat to all of this, which is to say, this is a journey and a practice, not a on-off switch. So again, back to being non-binaryness, Community design is a spectrum from being like fully expressed divine by, and that's the end of the spectrum, perhaps. It's like you arrive Mm. there at some point, but we should all be reaching towards it. And I wonder if it's like not even a spectrum. I wonder if it's more so like some kind of constellation or a constellation. Yeah. Just something totally. Yeah. Just kind of that there's. There's different elements to it. It's kind of non-linear. Um, and, and what strikes me as well as you were providing those examples is to get fixated in helping other people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots we could say about that <laughs> and where that <laughs> comes from and being kind of quite mistrustful of that. Um, but it also, it's so one-directional, right? Like when mm-hmm. we're designing in and with community, especially when it's kind of our community in some capacity, whether it's mm-hmm. where we live or who we are or, as you say, the interests we have, there's yeah. a there's both a question of how do I care for other people in community and, and how am I cared for in return. And right, right. certainly when I worked in commercial design, there, there was only one direction ever happened. <laughs> it was like, no, 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 Kelly, just how, how, do, how do we get the money and what do we do? Yeah, totally. And I think that's both sort of selling ourselves short if we've chosen to do this type of practice or this type of work. Um, You know, it's it's a bit hollow, really. It's a bit like it's hollow. It's also just it's very reduced. Like that's the thing about capitalism that I find so frustrating is that it reduces us. I feel that way about binaries in general is that they reduce us, they squish us, they flatten us. And like, in a certain way, the pandemic to me has been the great flattening because everything went on the internet. So there is like a way in which the world turned into this weird 2D matrix thing um, and that we lose the context, the contours, the nuance, the things that make everything interesting (laughs) in pursuit of ease and a lack of critical thinking. So it's like to bring it back to a point you had made earlier around like the importance of critique it's like critique isn't bad. Critique is actually an investment. It's a deep investment and an analysis because I love something and I know it could be better. Mm. And I just think about 
you know, the type of things that, that I've been involved in in my design practice. And I think of projects where, you know, I was sort of thrown in and pulled out. And then I think of projects where, or initiatives or movements where I have just got to spend the time and yeah. it feels much more human. If we're talking about human to spend the time getting to know people and getting to know mm-hmm. different dimensions of their lives, not just who they are as a product user or a service mm-hmm. user or a recipient of a, a system. Yeah. Or even as a colleague, you know, it's like mm-hmm. there is something about our humanity being reintroduced that is actually about doing less, but doing more of the right things. And mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that. Like two years ago, I read this paper about scaling down by Jim Meyerson. And it was basically how like designers are taught to do more for more people. And that's what scale means is like more and bigger and better. But that the reality is we have reached, we have reached past the limits of the planet. We have reached past the natural ability of productivity for people and are trying to work like robots, which is not necessary. There are robots, they can do robot things. Mm -hmm. So we're in this really interesting tipping space, again, an interstitial zone where we have to acknowledge the fact that we're all working too much, producing too much, consuming too much. The answer is less and everyone's scared of that. When you Mm -hmm. go to a business or a nonprofit or an institution of work, and everyone's like, wow, I'm at capacity. The answer is always add more people, not do less work. Yes. Yes. And like, <laughs> sometimes the answer needs to be do less work. Added, you know, I think this is also, though, a great myth perpetuated by some design practices in which there's this obsession with new and more. And yes. it seems like there's not a strong enough conversation about subtractive sort yes. of change like taking no one knows away. how to back up no one every client that we have had we've had almost 20 clients in the last 12 months okay all of them have said you know what we need is a tool to help us figure out what not to do a way to say what are we going to put down an approach to that's rigorous around deprioritization mm-hmm. but the idea of less is such um like an anathema in a capitalist system it's like the opposite. It's like, no, no, more, always. Somehow we'll figure it out. But it's as important and in fun, some ways fundamentally more difficult to figure mm-hmm. out what you're not going to keep doing because it's so out of the realm of like cultural familiarity. And it also strikes me that we don't talk enough about, you know, practices like what would it be to remix or to yeah. remake or to join together or to join up? Um, mm-hmm. I think there's kind of all these additional responses in which you know when your default is let's do a brainstorm about the new things we should do (laughs) then all of those other things are missed right and and, it's funny you say that because like I feel like there was a moment maybe like eight years ago where the term in my field was like oh you could be a social entrepreneur you could start some social thing I was like that's cool um I like to be a social intrapreneur and help things that are already there And a lot of millennials, and again, we talked about this just recently, like there is this impulse towards entrepreneurship for a variety of reasons. But even within that, you can still be working together. Mm. And I think that the narratives, the cultural narratives in the U.S., and therefore, sadly, the rest of the world, because we're so good at exporting our culture in the U.S., uh, the U.S. narrative has, up until the pandemic, been very much like, I'm good, so my people are good, we're good, you take care of yourself. 
And there are pockets of that in the U.S. In, in a lot of ways still. But there's also this beautiful emergence as a reminder of what happens when we work together collectively. And in fact, it's also the only option, right? Mm-hmm. There's no way out from the special obstacles and like doomsday clock ticking that we're dealing with besides collective action at a massive scale. So mm-hmm. I don't think we're going to get there if we can't even do collective action in our like collective organizing, collective work in our daily lives right now. Mm. And on that note, thinking about, you know, collective organizing thinking about community reciprocity and the like as we bring our conversation to a close I wonder if there's books or resources that you'd encourage to people if they wanted to explore some of these and I'm, I'm loath to say ideas because I don't think they're just ideas um mm. directions realities whatever the right yeah, word is for that. like near futures mm. yes perhaps um, you know, there's a book called Octavia's Brood. It's an anthology by Adrienne Marie, Marie Brown that didn't get as much like public kind of mainstreaming as her future work did. The reason I love that book is that it basically takes the writing of Octavia Butler and engages social justice advocates in describing dystopian and utopian realities. And I think it's a good reminder of how to live in imagination and how to use that to create a set of potential realities that you can then choose from. Mm. And in that light, I will also tell you my favorite book my entire life that still feels relevant is Harold and the Purple Crayon, where this kid is basically like alone in this book and he's just like a sketch pencil drawing. And it's like, oh, it's dark, so he draws the moon. Oh, it's wet, so he draws a boat. Oh, I'm tired, so he draws a bed. <laughs> and it's this idea of like, imag- like manifestation that feels mm. really important right now. Um, and I can't remember the name of this book right now, but any books about abolition, I believe every designer should be reading. If you can find mm-hmm. any book, any speakers that you find most resonant because abolition has this idea of like, oh, it's about, you know, crushing and ending things about the end of things. It's actually about very beautiful, very tender, very, um, important, like emergence and, mm-hmm. and the possibilities of how the world could be starkly, radically different. So mm. anything that helps you get to that space, whether it's Octavia's Brood or, you know, any writing, anything by Bell Hooks ever, I think there's there's a there there that is really important to explore for designers right now. Thank you so much. And we'll pop those things into the show notes for those who are interested in reading any of those books that you mentioned. Um, and maybe we can also ask the community what they're rec- recommendations are based on thank you so much for the space that you hold for us as a community design space i really just am so grateful for the podcast and also for the open open source knowledge sharing that you've been advocating for in our field and just for the way that you hold space and it has been an absolute delight this has been like such a wonderful way to end the day for me thank you oh and such a good way to start the day for me on <laughs> yes, a Friday, exactly. maybe a day ahead. <laughs> um, and likewise, I mean, it's just, it's so fantastic to have you and, you know, the richness and tenderness and eloquence that you bring to talking about community-led design and what types of futures might be possible for us. Um, so really an enormous thank you for coming on the podcast. We're so excited to share this episode with folks. Um, thank you so much for your time 
Thanks for listening to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com. You can sign up to the community newsletter, learn about upcoming online community gatherings, or join the Slack channel where you can connect with thousands of other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thank you for listening and see you next time.